It's time to stop dealing and start demanding. It's time to stop being PC and start being transparent and authentic. It's time to get real. Prepare yourself. It's time for Crazy and the King. Welcome to Crazy and the King. Hey, Torin, how's it going? We might say welcome to COVID and the King. Like COVID, uh, I mean, it's like all over the place. There's no way around it. I believe that people are beginning to really believe it. Uh, I think that many people believed it in the beginning, but I, what, I, what I mean when I say that, I believe that more people who were naysayers are beginning to believe that we are seriously in it. But I'm good. How are you? Yeah. Uh, good. I, I've got a house full of urchins and, and husband and dogs, but we are hunkered down and riding it out. I mean, that's all we can do. We're not going to do anything that puts anyone else in danger. And so we're trying to do some things for our community, trying to give back, mostly just trying to stay home. Yeah. Yeah. I actually feel like uh, I got like a little mini corner store in my garage and you know, or, or Jerry is, but outside of that, you know, I, I am determined uh, not to sit around and, and gain weight and, and get lazy. Like I actually uh, started, Julie, I don't know if I told you this, but I actually started teaching myself iMovie uh, over the weekend. Um, really? You know, because, yeah. You know, I, I'm not trying to learn coding, but I said, I can certainly learn how to put some two, three minute videos together. And so I'm beginning to teach myself iMovie. I am going to use this this lull, if you will, uh, productively. So we're going to keep pushing forward and we're going to continue to be productive. That's the, the, the position I'm in. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think our topic for today is so timely for a variety of reasons and is so um, impactful yeah. to our audience. So, and, and this is totally you. You found this great resource for us to have this awesome conversation. So why don't you kick us off? Absolutely. You know, I've been in this game for a minute. And so I, um, well, not even I, when you and I, we, we, we started to do some brainstorming and course direction for the beginning of the year, uh, we actually created a content calendar and one of our obligations to the listeners uh, and we really want you all to know this. One of our obligations to you uh, was to go a bit deep on topics. And we wanted to do that uh, on a monthly basis in areas that intersected with the DNI space. And uh, so one of the first deep dive topics for us is the Edelman Trust Barometer. Uh, I don't know if you are familiar with the report. Of course, Julie and I will include it in the show notes as we always do. Uh, Edelman Trust Barometer is born out of uh, the Edelman Agency. It's a uh, firm that was established in 1952, and they are a global communications firm that partners with businesses and organizations to evolve, promote, and protect their brands and their reputations. So we're not talking about a slouch of an organization. They are very much so trusted. They are in a number of countries. They have thousands, tens of thousands of employees. And when I found this Edelman Trust Barometer about three years ago, it's been a resource that I've constantly looked at on a yearly basis. And then I refer to it, you know, at various points throughout the year, because what they do is they really talk about the state of business. They talk about actually the state of business and beyond 
and they really highlight what people are feeling as it relates to a, a couple of important sectors. Are you familiar with the report, Julie? Uh, I am. I am, and I absolutely love the way that they're they're taking it on. Because what you said is protecting brands and reputations, but we know that the best way to protect your brand and reputation is through action. And they are not talking about how to do better marketing. They're talking about how to be more trusted and really defining that and measuring that. And I think it's such an amazing resource for us to use as DNI professionals and just leaders to make sure that we are hitting those marks with our, our employees and, and with uh, our customers and just our community. No, absolutely right. So what we'll do here is we're going to actually insert a small clip. We want to put in a small clip that I think sums it up very well from the uh, current leader of Edelman. Take a listen. It's less than two minutes. And then Julie and I will be right back to hop in the conversation. The Edelman Trust Barometer 2020 is a paradox. It's a rising economic tide and a stagnating situation for trust. There's record mass class inequality. Fears are overwhelming hope. Two thirds of people say that the pace of change is too fast. Tech is no longer the most trusted in one third of the countries we survey. 80% or more believe that they might lose their job to automation or gig economy. And more than half of them believe that capitalism causes more harm than good. What this has led to is a new way of looking at trust, that the model actually has to move to one that is now competence and ethical behavior around transparency, sustainable supply chain, as well as paying fair wages and retraining. Business has to be out front. 75% believe that business can be a force for good in society as well as making profits. 92% say that CEOs have to speak out on the issues of the day. Two-thirds of people want to buy products that stand with them. Three-quarters of employees want to feel as if they're changing society. All of this leading to a very important kind of shift in mentality for business. Business has to collaborate with NGOs and with government. Retraining is a perfect kind of test case because it takes community colleges, tax incentives, local NGOs on the ground. If you're a tech company, you're partnering on artificial intelligence or privacy because it's only with that combination that you actually can break through and change this trust paradox. So Julie, uh, Edelman, been around for 20 years. They are Actually, it's been around for longer than that, but this trust barometer is in its 20th year. And one of the most salient points for me is that a majority of the respondents in every developed market does not believe that they will be better off in five years time. And worse than that, more than half of the respondents globally believe that capitalism in its current form is now doing more harm than good in the world. That was like the point 
that jumped. There were certainly several yeah. of them, but that was the point for me that really kind of set the tone for how am I going to pull and take in this information, digest it, and then return it back to the marketplace in a way that complements, you know, DNI efforts inside of so many organizations around the country and the world. People are not trusting this current form of capitalism. Yeah, and I think we need to take a second and let that just settle in. More than half of respondents globally believe that capitalism in its current form is doing more harm than good. And we're seeing that, right, in in reality, in our move to nationalism, to populism, those are indicators that a governmental correction is coming. And when you're seeing that spread throughout the developed world, um, that means we should, as business leaders, we should be paying attention. More than paying attention, we should be taking some action. And, yes. and, and more than just the business leaders, I believe it's all of us that should be paying attention and figuring out how to take action. I think one of the things that we drive home every single episode is find your voice. And, and I think people feel like I say that ad nauseum, but you have to find your voice inside of our respective workplaces, uh, of course, inside of our communities as well. And, and there's no reason for you know, 150 million people that are working, and that's just here in the U.S. I don't know what the global work workforce looks like, but I know for 150 million people here in the U.S., we have a very strong voice, and collectively, we can make a difference uh, in the way that a lot of these organizations operate. Here's a couple more stats from the report that jumped out. 83% of employees say that they fear losing their job, uh, they are attributed to the gig economy, a looming recession, a lack of skills, cheaper foreign competitors, immigrants who will work for less, automation, or jobs being moved to other countries. Well, this is something that, again, is not new. You know, we have, you know, we just lost Jack Welch a couple of weeks ago, uh, unfortunately, yeah. rest his soul. But there are some people that say that this entire, um, you know, position, this entire thirst theme of outsourcing jobs, some attributed that to him, you know, him back in the eighties when he was with uh, GE, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, what I look at is it listed all of these things, these, these recessions and skills and competitors and immigrants, but nowhere did it say anything about a mention of a COVID-19 attack. And, 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 and yeah. I'm not using it tongue in cheekish, what I'm, I'm, I'm raising is that there are always going to be these uh, unforeseen calamities or challenges that are going to apply, I mean, extreme pressure to how we show up inside of our organizations. And so the question for me becomes, you know, the question for me becomes, if, if we can't get DNI right when things are good and humming along, then, then how in the world do we expect to get it right under conditions like we are right now? Folks are disparate. Folks are distributed. Folks are remote. You know, you got people that are not even accustomed to using some of this technology. You know, how do we do diversity and inclusion when we are, are, are pressed with challenges like a COVID-19? I think it's it's deeper 
than even COVID-19. How do we do disability and inclusion? Let's just assume that we are going to go into a post-COVID recession in the next three to six months, depending on how quickly we can get on the other side of this. Will DNI still be a priority? Or has that activity, has that marketing, has it been a PR stunt for a lot of these companies? And what is that going to do when we have a trust issue that already exists and we have a, a trust issue that is impacting diverse communities because they've been through recessions, they've been through retractions in the market, and it's going to be much larger, right? Much larger. And when you have a political system that has demonized globalization in the way that it has and used it really as that spark for nationalism, populism, fear of immigrants, this issue with with COVID-19 is only going to reinforce those political messages and those social media messages that have become ingrained in our society, but are impacting our ability to really make an impact and gain the trust of our employees. Yeah. So if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is that we actually may slide backwards. We may uh, experience a decline in effort uh, based on all of the messaging, the climate, the aura of leadership, uh, political leadership. You're saying you feel like a lot of organizations are going to take two or three steps back. Um, I, I hope not. Okay. But I think that's kind of the gauntlet that I want to throw down to our listeners is where's your DNI when it gets hard? Yeah. Right. It's it's really easy when we're running at full employment. It's really easy when budgets are loose and we've got money flowing. Where's your effort going to be when those budgets get tighter? Yes. And when those priorities are, are less about hiring um, and more about just keeping the day to day ship running. Yeah, absolutely. So so let's take a step back. So, of course, it's yeah. called the Edelman Trust Barometer. I, my question to you is, how do you determine a business person? a business or a person is trustworthy. Do you have like a mechanism, a process? Does it take time for you? What's your, you know, format for arriving at I trust? Yeah. I was going to use myself as an example, but I know you trust me. So that may not be a a great example. So how do you establish that? Well, let's say, why do I trust you? Okay. Right. Right. I mean, we didn't really know each other when we started this podcast. So why do I trust Torrin? All right. Because you show up every week. You always give it your best. You're honest with me about things that you like and you don't like. And you check in, right? You're like, hey, how's the hubs? How's the kids? How are things? And it's really through that development of the relationship and that knowing that I can count on you. Um you know, now for just over a year that let me know I could trust you as a business partner, but also as a friend. Yeah. So an Edelman inside of the report, uh, and by the way, they actually hit about, uh, 1200. It's actually 1,150 respondents 
per market and they hit a number of markets around the country. You can get the exact details from the report. I think in total, it was 28 markets, 34,000 respondents in total. And what they walked away you know, uncovering, Julie, is that typically people today grant their trust based on two distinct attributes. They, one, base it on competence, delivering on promises. And then second, they base it on ethical behavior doing the right thing and working to improve society. I believe that I do fit inside of both of those categories. Now, certainly there are some other areas of life where I may not necessarily get a shining star, but but in, in as it relates to the work that we do, I believe that I fit, I believe you fit inside of those two distinct attributes, competence and ethical behavior. And what they found What they found is that the majority of respondents, none of the four institutions that they looked at, NGOs, government, media, business, are to be trusted. And that is a problem. Yes. Yes. And it plays out. You know, it plays out, Julie, inside of our news cycle, our social media sphere, as you alluded to in a moment, uh, a moment ago. It plays out inside of our workplaces, and it's poorly reflected. That lack of trust is poorly reflected in our public policy and institutions that really uh, encumber our lives. It circles everything that we do. And, I mean, if we have trust in nothing, right? I mean, no institution right now as a whole has our trust then really that develops into a paranoia almost, right? If you can't trust anything or anyone, how are you supposed to go and build a life based on instability? Yeah, well And that can't that can't make for for happy employees. No, it can't make for happy employees. And again, the reason why we raise this as an issue is because we feel like no matter what your role is inside of the organization, no matter what position, title, authority you have in the organization, we want you to find or add a layer of authority as in we want to arm you. We want you to read different material and operate a bit differently inside of your workplace. We don't necessarily want you to run in roughshod. We want you to be you know, mm-hmm. informed, if you will. And so that's the reason why we are spending time in this episode going deep on the Edelman Trust Barometer, because it impacts each and every one of us in each and every one of our businesses, our business relationships, collaborations, strategic engagements. It impacts every single angle in in how we connect those ends together to keep building and moving business forward. I I want us to go deep on the report, Julian. I know that you are prepared to do that, but before we do, let's just take a quick moment. It's about a minute and 50 seconds. Let's listen to I believe her name is the Honorable Amber Rudd. She's the former Home Secretary over in uh, uh, London, and she's actually talking about how the the, uh, trust barometer plays out in Parliament. And we did this because we don't want you to think that we're only focused on the U.S. Grab this video. We want to throw it in and give you a a peek at, at how they are looking at it over in Europe, and we will be right back. The phrase is, you campaign in poetry, but govern in prose. 
And you often hear that sound bite with a sort of wry, cynical smile, and people accept that. They accept the kind of the, the view that politicians uh, can exaggerate, but actually lie, no. A liar is one of the words that is banned in the House of Commons. If an MP uses it, or anything close to the word liar, another MP will call them out on it, the Speaker has to intervene, and the MP in question has to either withdraw or be escorted from the House of Commons. I'm told that there is a list somewhere of words that is close enough to liar to show you the meaning, but not actually get you expelled. I never actually found that list. But uh, back to the so-called prose. And I think it's increasingly being identified by the public as being just too close to a lie. Politicians are usually careful to stay so close to the true truth, partly for fear of the response from other politicians pointing the error. They, politicians, in a way, from different parties or different sides, police each other. But it feels like politicians have moved on from taking that role, not policing each other, and therefore not being policed themselves to an agreed standard of truth. It's the Wild West, and there are apparently no limits. And it matters, as we heard from Ed and Richard earlier. Low trust has other consequences. In my view, it will lead to contempt, which will erode the consent that is the heart of a governing democracy. All right, so something that really stood out to me in, in the report, but also in this last clip, is what does this lack of trust or what does the trust barometer mean for the future of work yeah and we started to chat about this a, a little bit torn but what you know what we're seeing as a society is that not everyone feels like the rising tide is bringing up all boats mm. right there is a fear factor that's living in our world. And when I say our world, I'm, I'm going to talk about the developed world where we don't feel like we're going to be better off than we are now in five years. We don't feel like we are maintaining our, our social status or our place in society. So we feel that we are losing. And we don't trust the institutions that have built the Western world to create opportunity, to lessen that fear. And so there really is just an overwhelming fear factor. And part of that is, is due to what you mentioned at the top is that fear of, of losing their job right? Whether it's globalization, a gig economy, automation, outsourcing, people are scared of losing their job. They're scared of losing their ability to provide for their family. And we're also seeing this play out on a global scale when we're talking about a mass class divide, right? The, the biggest barrier to trust or, or the break, I guess is a better way to say it, in those who trust and those who do not trust is divided by income. And we have record high in income equality in this country, um, but also in a record number of countries and at a record rate. And that's only going to continue to grow. And so when I'm thinking about 
what does that mean for the future of work and the class divide, right? What I see, what we're in right now with with the COVID-19 situation is that potentially our government is going to provide, I don't want to say bailout because it's a loaded word, but provide money yep. for businesses not to go under. Yep. But what, what we've seen after a $1.5 trillion tax cut to corporations in this country is that instead of spending that money on R&D, instead of spending money on, on uh, raising wages, instead of providing a living wage for employees, we saw a record number of stock buybacks, which benefits who? Uh, corporations, Executives, shareholders, absolutely. and the shareholders. Yep. Yes. And, and so my 401k until a few weeks ago was doing really great. And so, okay. Um, the person who's making 725 an hour and has been making 725 an hour for the last, you know, since the last time we raised the minimum wage 20 years ago, um, did not see that has not seen the benefit of this economy. They have not seen the benefit of, um, all of these promises that have been made both by corporations in, in, and government institutions. And so when we kind of take this as the, the base, right, what does it mean for the future of work? We already have a class divide. We already have a populace that is scared of being left behind, of losing their job, of not being able to live the American dream or the Western dream. And now we have a situation where misinformation and all of these fears are compounded by a COVID crisis, by a, a global health crisis that, you, knock on wood, you and I will never see again in our lifetimes. And I really feel like it feels like the Wild West right now for individuals. And how are we going to come out of 2020? How are we going to come out of this pandemic with our trust yeah. barometer? Well, let me tell you, um, you know, you said something a moment ago about we may not see something like this again in our lifetime. I think that you have a uh, high degree of optimism, uh, you know, because <laughs> I feel like, you know, at my age, I'm like, I, I, I feel like I got about 50 more years to go. Uh, and so I, I unfortunately feel like I, I may probably, probably see, you know, one, maybe even two more calamities to hit, but I also want to kind of raise, uh, an issue, uh, because again, this report was published in January of this year or early February. Um, the virus began to be talked about. I remember the first time I saw something, it was last uh, December, just before the end of the year. But I want to raise uh, to the radar, we lost somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.2 to 2.6 or 7 million jobs uh, during the economic downturn of 2008. I have seen reports um as recent as this week that are are projecting that we will lose 2.2 million jobs over the next two to four weeks. So you are talking about experiencing in a month what we experienced in a year in a couple of months. 
that is going to wreak havoc on people. And I and then let me just yeah. add, I'm sorry, add one other nuance on top of that. You are going to have that unemployment rate skyrocket, and you are going to have companies who are throwing workers off of their health insurance during the middle of a global health crisis. Yeah. Yeah, which which is the exact opposite. Now, again, for all of you out there listening, I get the balance sheet and all that other stuff, but throwing people off is the exact opposite of inclusion. It is exactly what Julie and I are talking about in the beginning. Where does DNI fit on the sphere of importance when we are going through a crisis like this? Because here, here's what we know. No matter what they decide to do, one, a lot of the jobs that are today will not return. Not all of them, but a number of them are going to be gone. And so two, how do we ramp back up that pipeline filling, that backfilling of roles? How do we uh, alleviate the pressure that we've placed on an individual to do the work of two, three, four people? How do we consider uh, you know, the manufacturing space that we've allowed to be, you know, damn near obliterated uh, in our country. And now I'm assuming that people just as, as, as much as they're not going to want you to walk into a, a local coffee shop with your cup from home, I can almost promise you coffee shops are not going to have people bringing their cups from home for a refill after we get through all of this. Just the same way that consideration is going to be given we'll probably on a much larger level be considering how do we bring manufacturing back to the U.S.? That's a good thing. So because some of these things are going to happen, what I want people thinking about is do not allow diversity and inclusion from wherever your vantage point is in the organization to become something that slips off of your radar. Don't do it. Yeah. And well, and I I think, you know, just kind of wrapping up Torn. We also have to understand that, you know, we have a Gen X and, and, and millennials who are already jaded about the places that they work. They've been through the 2008 recession. They've been through the, the muck. And now as we have Gen Z entering the workforce, we have a, a global pandemic. And and I and I want to just for one second call bullshit on on the balance sheet companies know that contractions in the economic or in the in the market and the economy come and they fail time after time after time to plan for them and then they ask for we the taxpayer or we the employee to understand why they can't retain us why they can't have retraining or provide living wages That excuse is just not going to fly anymore. Companies need to, just like I have to have an emergency fund, companies need to have emergency funds so that we can get through the skinny times together. And until we do that, we're not going to raise trust. And and when we also see D&I going out the door, all of those kind of things, it's just not going to mean the same, which is why as D&I leaders, right, what's what's the kind of happy takeaway i guess here is the business creates change there's still so much power here and this is the time for businesses to lead 
for everyone, right? Everyone, not just the executives, not just the shareholders, but they have to think about diversity, sustainability, and how they're using data in order for that trust factor to start to rise again, at least in our business sector. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, again, 78 page report, they did an incredible job of reaching out to people all around the world, 28 different markets. Uh, the field work was conducted October 19th through November 18th of 2019. So for just over a month, they collated data. Uh, you can read the report. We will put the link there for you. I hear you when you say 78 pages, you're like, Torn, I'm not trying to read all of that. But really, it's a lot of very large pictures, large words. It's easy to get through. You could digest it at least on your first sitting and no less than, you know, no more than I should say five or 10 minutes. And then you can kind of circle back and spend some time finding areas of the report that really, really jump out for you. One of the things that I do want to say before before we close up, Julie, is this. Uh, while it's a report that I uh, refer to, I, I probably take screenshots out and not probably, I do take screenshots out and uh, place them inside of my keynote presentations. I am disappointed in Edelman in a particular way. Number one, on the report, uh, on the front page and throughout the report, there are no black and brown people reflected inside of this report. You cannot go to all of these countries and not necessarily have representation in terms of imagery. You are collecting their data, but you are not referencing them. They are not imaged in the report. I find that to be uh, a bit problematic. Some may call it petty. I call it uh, recognition, if you will. The second thing that I want to raise is, you know, from a global leadership perspective, Edelman is doing a great job on the gender base, six women, eight men. So they do an incredible job uh, in that regard. Uh, but once again, there are no black and brown individuals in their highest levels of leadership. And so, yes, they do have a DNI message. Yes, they have internal uh, groups for, you know, a variety of sex of the workplace, you know, LGBTQ or women and some of the others. Yes, they do have uh, leadership, uh, women in leadership, but all of that is standard in my opinion, and it should be the minimum for any firm, certainly a firm that we high, we hold in such high regard. Uh, but again, it's just hard for me uh, to ignore the glaring absence of black and brown people at the highest levels of leadership uh, within this report. And that's a challenge that I hope that they address and overcome soon. I think we need to point that out every time, especially when they're talking about diversity as a priority. Absolutely. Oh, I think you had a couple of um, resources you wanted to call out this week before we hit name drop store. Yeah. So again, because we're in COVID-19, I know that many of you are exhausted uh, with different tips around technology and, you know, hacking the workplace, if you will. But what I want to do is use the time just to simply say that for millions of individuals now is a dangerous time for them. They are in abusive relationships and being shut up inside of the home uh, is problematic. And so uh, I want to just really uh, real quick, the Anti-Violence Project offers a 24-hour English and Spanish hotline for LGBTQ uh, individuals experiencing abuse or hate-based violence. That number is 212-714-1141. And then the National Domestic Violence Hotline is available around the clock 
uh, in more than 200 languages, and that number is 800-799-SAFE, 800-799-SAFE, or you can chat with their advocates uh, via text if you shoot the phrase love is to 22522. Text the phrase love is one word to 22522. Awesome. I think that's a great point, Torin. Um, there are a lot of people who don't want to be at home right now. And um, for name drops this week, I just in general want to give a, a name drop to all of those parents out there who have found themselves all of a sudden uh, becoming full-time teachers, telecommuters, and uh, sanity keepers in, in their homes. And also those in the service industry, I spent a, a lot of my college years and, and younger working years um, serving tables and, and, and tending bar to, to get through. And I know how tough that is for them to be out of work and, and what a challenging environment it is in the first place. So we're definitely thinking about you guys. Some of us are in those same places right now with uh, kids at home. And uh, let's just get through this together. And if you need anything, you, you know, you can always reach out to me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Drop your Twitter um, we just all got to drop your Twitter handle. Uh, at, at Julie Sowash, S-O-W-A-S-H. Yep, 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 yep. And I am across all of social media at Torin Ellis. Uh, just want to bring to your attention. I started doing something real funky, fresh. Uh, last Monday, I actually did... Um, uh, my first IG live. And so I'm going to do IG lives every single Monday at 12 PM Eastern. And the reason I'm doing these is not for us, the practitioners. We hear this all the time. I'm trying to do IG lives and let my information land on that layperson, just that employee, that person that's working the counter at Burger King or McDonald's, the individual that's in housekeeping or accounting or uh, logistics or shipping at, at a Northrop Grumman or a Marriott, uh, a person working inside of a tech company that's a coder. I want everyone to get a message around DNI. And so every Monday, 12 p.m. Eastern, I'm going to do a 10, 15 minute IG live, have some fun. Uh, and then when I get good on iMovie, I'll start doing some videos and using some of the other platforms. You good, Julie? I'm good. Awesome. So I close and reminded each and every one of you to share the pod with your digital tribe. I want you, as we said at the beginning, to find your voice in the workplace. Be a better human. Have an awesome rest of the week. And you can, of course, catch me on Sirius XM channel 126 each and every Sunday, 1 p.m., 1 p.m. every single Sunday. For now, Julie and I are ghost. See ya. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you, and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure.
You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.